Again, welcome to you who are online and watching from your home. We're glad you're here. Um, And for those here in the house, we're glad you are with us as well. So I'm not much of a conspiracy theorist. Um, I don't really um, follow conspiracies. However, um, I believe this last year I was um, the result of a conspiracy um, that that has deeply affected me. Um, For basically the first 40 years of my life, um, my vision was perfect. It was 2020, and I never had glasses or contacts, and um, I was kind of bragging about that to my wife, and she'd come home from an eye appointment with one of our other kids and said, hey, I made you an eye appointment. And I said, well, well, why? I haven't been to the eye doctor since high school. I have perfect 20-20 vision. Why do I need to go to the eye doctor? And so I went to the eye doctor, and I walked in, and the lady greets me and says, um, contacts or glasses? And with my chest stuck out, I proudly declared, neither. I have 20-20 vision. Everything's great. She said, I hope that will be the case still. And so we go through these tests, and um, she sits me down, and she says, we need to talk. You need glasses. And not just reading glasses, but you need bifocals, because you need a little boost on both ends. And I knew she was wrong. And I spent the next 20 minutes trying to convince her of that. And so um, this is a picture of me trying on my glasses. If I look unhappy about the fact that I'm trying on glasses, I am. And so I was texting my wife to say, hey, how do these look? And, And to show you that I really don't need glasses, that this was a conspiracy between my wife and the eye doctor... Um, last week, I preached without my glasses and didn't even know it until I started reading. Yeah. But all of us on some level have vision problems. And, and at some level, we aren't really sure what the things are that we can't see until someone points them out to us. Because for all of us, We have different areas of our life and different areas in this world that we struggle to see. And the goal of this series is to ask a really, really simple question. And it's how well do you see Jesus? How well do you see the wonder worker? This one who is performing these incredible miracles. Who is healing the lame and causing the blind to see, and raising the dead. And we have to ask the question, does God still perform miracles? Does this Jesus, the wonder worker, still work wonders in our world? And here's why that question is so, so important. Because how you see Him, will determine how you respond to Him. How well you see Jesus will determine how you respond to Him. And it begs the question, do you see a good teacher? Or a great man? Or a wonder worker? Or do you see the Son of God? Because how you see Jesus will affect how you respond to Him. Because if the gospel that we proclaim 
is good news, then it's not just simply good news for you and I here or in your homes. That the good news of Jesus is supposed to saturate our life in such a way that it seeps onto everything and everyone we come in contact with. And the world is changed and different because of Jesus, the Son of God. And there's a story at the end of John's Gospel. We haven't looked at a whole lot of stories in John's during this this eight-week series. But I want to finish with this very last wonder that Jesus performs. It's in chapter 21. And it says, Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas also called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. And this phrase there that Peter says has always kind of struck me. I'm going fishing. And stop for just a second and think about the last several weeks for Peter and these disciples. Every moment of every day was consumed with what Jesus was doing. Their schedule for today is whatever Jesus is doing. Where are we going today? Wherever Jesus is going. Where are we going to eat? Wherever Jesus is eating. Everything in their life, in their world, was simply about Jesus and what he was doing and following him. And Jesus dies, and there are, are these moments where they've caught glimpses of him. And as his disciples, this is the third time that they've seen Jesus or at least evidence of his resurrection. And and here in this moment, they're they're waiting for Jesus. They're not sure what's going on. They they know that they have a purpose and a mission in this world. And here Peter says, I'm going fishing. I, I mean, think about the last years of their life. Everything was centered around them. Everything was centered around Jesus. And they find themselves in a place where Jesus is not there, and Peter's response is to go back to fish, to go back to do what he used to do. Because their calendar is now wide open. When, when we are uncertain, we run back to what we know. When we are uncertain, we will always run back to what we know. Because what we know is where we are comfortable. And where we are comfortable is the place that we most want to be. And when we walk into places where we're not sure what it looks like or what we should do or what the next move is, we run back. I think it's so telling during this whole COVID-19 thing that we've had people for years saying the pace of life is too fast, the pace of life is too fast, the pace of life is too fast, and now we come to a place where we're kind of resting and we're slowing down, and the thing that I hear most often that people say is we want to go back to normal. We want to go back to that high-speed, fast pace of life where we're always running. 
It's why people who are caught up in addiction struggle to break free. Because even as unhealthy as the addiction is, it's what they know. It's what's ingrained in them. Because eventually what you do becomes who you are. It becomes the identity that you're boasting in. And the the thing about identity that's so important is every single identity that people have is earned. Except for one. Your identity in Christ is the only identity that is given, that is given freely, and you are able to put it on, to wear it, to share in it. It is the only identity of its kind, because every other identity is earned. I think this, this, when we're uncertain, we go back to what we know, is why people who have been caught up in years in abusive relationships always find themselves in abusive relationships. There's, there's a pattern. And no matter how unhealthy the circumstances are, we would rather have certainty than uncertainty. Even when uncertain, or even when certain, is unhealthy. And so Peter sees Jesus, and John says, it says, early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they replied. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And when he did, They were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved, who would be John writing the gospel, said to Simon Peter, It is the Lord. And as as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, and he jumped into the water. And the other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, They were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire and burning coals on it with fish on it and some bread. So Peter sees and realizes it's Jesus, and he jumps out of the boat and runs to Jesus. And I think it's so fitting that on the shore there's this charcoal fire burning with fish on it. And I wonder as Peter gets to the shore... If the smell of charcoal hits his nostrils and he has a flashback to several days or weeks before. The last time he was around a charcoal fire, he was warming himself at night when Jesus was fixing to be crucified. And it was the moment that he had promised he would never fall into the temptation and deny Jesus. And he does. Three times he denies Jesus. And I wonder if the charcoal hitting his nostrils just sparks this memory. This vivid memory of a moment where he denied Jesus. And a reminder of the uncertainty of this moment. It's the uncertainty of this moment that drove him back to fish. Because it's what he knew. It's what he knew how to do. And it says in verse 9, when they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals. There was 
with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said, bring some of the fish you have just caught. And I find it so interesting that these disciples have fished and fished all night and they've caught nothing. And when they arrive at the shore, the very thing they had worked so hard to catch, Jesus had already caught and prepared. He had already prepared what they had worked so hard for. They fished all night and they had nothing. And as they arrive at the shore, there are fish on a fire. But, but not, not so much the fact that there's fish on a fire that's fascinating. It's verse 10 that just blows my mind. Because Jesus has food for them to eat. But what does He do? He invites them and says, bring me some of the fish that you caught. Bring me some of the fish that you have caught. And He invites them to participate in what He is already doing. He he still believes, even though He has done it, that there is a way that they can contribute to what is happening, that they can bring something to the mill that would make it special, that would make it something different. And there they have a feast. Jesus has a feast with Peter, the very one who denied him, as he begins to call him to follow him again, to invite him to be my disciple, to say, you're not finished. I still have work for you to do. Because I think in Peter's mind, Peter is done. How is it possible to be a disciple when in the moment that Jesus needed you most, you denied him? And here is Jesus eating with Peter once again. The question of this series lingers for you and I. It's how well do you see Jesus? And when you see Jesus, do you simply see a good teacher, a good man, a wonder worker? Or do you see the Son of God? Because how you see Him will determine how you respond to Him. Because the hope of the Gospel is it would saturate every part of you. And that you would saturate everything you come in contact with. With the hope that flows out of this Gospel. Out of this good news. Because as Tom read for us just a few moments ago in John chapter 20, leading into this very last miracle, as he's been talking about the signs and the wonders that he's going to perform, and John has showed us these seven miraculous signs that he's done, but but John had a purpose. If you can go to verse 30 for me. Jesus performed many other signs. He says, there there are the seven that are listed here in in John that the story is told. But but there are many others 
that he did in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But then he says this, but, but these were written. These ones that I have written down were written for a purpose. There was a reason in writing them. That you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. My, My purpose in writing these stories down is so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And that by believing, you would have life in His name. That that you would have life. And the hope is that that life would flow out into every single part of your life. And everything that you touch and come in contact because the hope of the gospel is that the gospel changes everything. From the inside out. It changes everything it comes in contact with. See, I'll tell you that I believe I have a vision problem. I'm still not admitting this vision problem. But I struggle to see the injustice that does not affect me directly. It's hard for me to see. But I think this last week, these last several weeks, it's been pretty obvious. It's all over the place. With a young teenager, college student jogging in a neighborhood who was killed by the man who was killed this past Monday in Minnesota, by all the the violence and protest we're seeing now, we see all kinds of brokenness and hurt in our world. And the question becomes, how do we as followers of Jesus respond and respond well? And I I told you I have a vision problem because I struggle to see because it's really difficult to explain what I don't understand. And I've thought all week, what what do we say to our church? How how do we respond? And I have a really good friend I coach baseball with here in Tyler. He's a pastor of a Baptist church, an African-American Baptist church. And I called him. And I said, Kilton, I'm, I'm struggling here. Because I know we need to speak to this but I don't know what to say. And the very first thing he told me was such a relief. He said, first of all, there's nothing that you can say that will fix it. Know that. And for me, being a fixer who likes to try to make things right, I want to fix it. I want to have the right words to say. But his encouragement was, you can't. Because this is a problem that has been around since the beginning of time. It goes way, way back, centuries and centuries and centuries. But the hope of the gospel 
is that it would begin to break down walls of injustice and oppression and objectification and inequality, and that it would begin to saturate the world around us, that it would bring hope and healing. And there's not just problems with racial inequality and racial injustice in our world. I don't know how many are aware, but there is a dramatic problem with sex slavery in our world. We, we have a, a group here, our sisters in service, who have adopted a, a teenage girl who has been rescued out of that life. And what I found so amazing is Refuge of Light, when they came to talk to us and tell us about this problem, I, I expected to hear, well, well here's the problem, is, is people have chosen this life, or people were kidnapped and taken into this life. But the number one reason these young girls find themselves in sex slavery is because they are sold by their parents for drug money. That is the number one reason. And it is wrong. And it is unjust. And whether we are talking about racial injustice or the objectification of these young girls, the church of Jesus Christ has to stand with and for those who do not have a voice. And, and as I was thinking, well, okay, what do we do? What tangibly can we do here and now where we are? And first is pray. We, we can pray with all of our heart that God in His power and through His Spirit would show up in our world and bring healing and hope and restoration. The, the, the presence of God's Spirit through His people would bring peace in our world. And, and that as Jesus talks about in the Sermon on the Mount, that we would be peacemakers. He, he does not say peacekeepers. He says peacemakers. Because those will be the children of God. That, that we are stepping into. And so where do we begin? I, I think it begins in, in Second Chronicles. And it's something that you've probably seen a lot recently. It's in 2 Chronicles 7, starting in verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. But, but here's the problem when we hear that most of the time. Most of the time, the way it's quoted and talked about is if everyone else out there would do this, then there would be healing in our land through God. But what he says is, my people who are called by my name, if they will humble themselves. And I believe it starts right there with you and I. That you and I would have a sense and a spirit of humility coming into this conversation and simply say, we don't know what to do but we will do whatever we can. We will stand with you, and we will stand for you, because we believe the power of the resurrection brings reconciliation to all people. See, we complain about sin. 
but we tend to overlook the sin that we're complicit with. The question right now in our world is, are we willing to stand up? And to stand for those who feel like they don't have a voice. Second is this, and I think we've picked this up um, from security since 9-11. Our security team here tells us this, if you see something, say something. And I think the same thing goes with racial injustice. When you see it, call it out. When you see joking and you hear joking, we call it out. And we say there's not a place for that now. Because this is a question of how much has the gospel changed your life? If you see something, say something. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. I have a lot of friends who are African-American. And I think for so long, I've been silent because I wasn't sure what to do or what to say. And the number one thing Kilton told me when I asked him, what do we do? He said the greatest thing that we can do is, one, just simply acknowledge that there is a problem. And maybe that's where we began across the board, with racial injustice, with social and economic injustice, whatever injustice, oppression there is, we simply acknowledge that there is a problem. And we ask the question, what is God doing in this world around it? Because this story, Jesus is on the shore, and He's already prepared the mill. And the invitation is to come be a part of what He's doing. I would say, through Jesus' death and resurrection, He is already tearing down those walls. Paul says in Ephesians that He's broken down the dividing wall of hostility between some races. He's broken that dividing wall down. Now we get to contribute and be a part of what He's already prepared and doing. And then third, is we listen to the voice of the voiceless. Those who feel like they do not have a voice, we listen to. And we listen not to hear, but as a really wise friend of mine named Sondra Clark would say, we listen to understand. And we make sure that those who feel like they do not have a voice have a voice. And the other thing I would say is that's not a conversation for Facebook. I would say that is a conversation that is meant to be had in person. That means we need to walk across the street. We need to walk next door. We need to sit down face to face. And we need to listen to people who are hurting and who are scared. Because as we've said, we want to be a church that is for Tyler. We want to be a church that's for our police department 
and for our first responders. I want to be a, a church for our friends of color and for children who are abused and who are sold. We want to be a church that's for people because we believe Jesus is for people. And we believe the gospel changes everything in our life. And that it has the power to change and reconcile and heal this land. So may, may we start with the simple act of humbling ourselves and praying and asking God to bring healing on his land through his people. Father, today, we pray for your healing power in our land. For people who are hurting and broken, who feel the chains of oppression and injustice, those who are abused and exploited, that, Father, that our gospel our good news would do more than just resurrect and save us, but that it would bring hope and healing to this land. That, Father, every tribe and tongue, every nation under heaven could be united as one. And, Father, we know that this problem is not new and it's not going away easily, but, Father, we want to stand with those who are hurting and to say, Father, we commit to walking beside them, to being for them, and to sharing life together. Father, bring your healing rain on this land. Heal us. Bring light into the midst of the darkness, hope into the midst of despair, healing to the brokenness. And Father, help us to find life in Jesus' name. Father, save us, heal us, restore us, reconcile us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.